Lord, uh, for this work that you're doing in each one of us, I give you thanks. And God, for whatever reason that we're here this morning, um, whether we were drug here kicking and screaming by someone that loves us, <laughs> uh, whether we came because we truly want to be here, God, what, whatever the reason, we're grateful to be here. And we, we, we know that you meet us uh, wherever we are, that you love us and that you're doing a work in each of us. And so, God, we commit uh, these next moments to you as we listen to your word. Give me words um, to speak. Give us all hearts and ears to listen to what you have to say to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have uh, a bit of difficulty believing the Easter story, the story that you heard read earlier, it's understandable. It's such an incredible story, really, that any thinking or any believing person, for that matter, ought to have a bit of difficulty with it. At least we should ask some questions about the Easter story. Consider this. We're asked to believe that someone who died a lengthy and torturous death on a Roman cross and was placed in a borrowed tomb where he had been decomposing for three days became alive again. That's what we're asked to believe. And if initially you find yourself skeptical or even cynical, you're in good company. Most of Christ's first followers, even his closest friends, had difficulty believing that he was really alive. In fact, I would suggest that if the Easter story causes you to question, or if it makes you a bit uneasy, it's because you understand to some degree what's at stake here. It probably means that you grasp something of the enormity of this event and its implications for your life. So let's look more closely at this first Easter experience that Hannah read for us this morning. The first thing that we notice is that it's the women who first go to the tomb. Now, if you're a woman, that's not surprising to you. But it is surprising given the fact that in first century Palestine, women were considered something less than second-class citizens. And yet they are the first ones to discover that Jesus is alive. But the fact is, this resurrection was first revealed to three faithful, caring, devout women. That's not insignificant. They came to the tomb to embalm Jesus, to cover his body with spices for the long process of decomposition. The terror of Good Friday was over, but their grief lingered with them as they went to the tomb. They came without hope, They came without faith. They came resigned to the fact that their friend and their Lord was dead. They arrived at the tomb, and the first thing that they noticed was that the stone had been rolled away. And then they went inside, which is a fairly heroic act in itself. And they discovered, I think to their horror, that Jesus' body was missing. And as they're wondering about that, that's what the Scripture says, and I think it's the understatement of the century, Two men, two angels in shining clothes appear next to them. And the angels ask these frightened women, first of all, what they're doing at the tomb. And next they remind the women that Jesus himself had declared that he, in fact, would be crucified and on the third day rise again. And as I read this account, I almost get the sense that these angels are scolding these women for their lack of faith. But then we read in verse 8, that these women remembered Christ's words. It kind of all came back to them. But they were still astonished. 
They were, I think, scared out of their wits. And they ran off to tell the others what they had seen and what they had heard. And not surprisingly, their stories met with disbelief. In fact, we read in verse 10 that their words seemed like nonsense. Or in an older translation, it says they seemed like an idle tale to the apostles. These 11 men who had spent three intimate years with Jesus. These men who had entrusted their lives to him dismissed the words of these women. I can't blame them. Who could blame them, really? I understand their reaction. There are absolutely no words that can adequately explain or describe the most awesome, mysterious event in cosmic history. That Jesus Christ, who was crucified, who was buried, was now alive. How can anyone describe what happened? How can any of us get our arms around this event or grasp the reality of what happened that first Easter morning? Well, the passage ends with Peter, and I love this, running to the tomb to see for himself what had happened. And the chapter ends with Jesus appearing to all of the apostles. Well, one of the points, one of the truths that's embedded in this account, it seems to me, is this. God, in some incredible way, honors our sincere unbelief, even our skepticism, even our cynicism. He can deal with our doubts and our questions. In fact, I would argue that God welcomes our questions. Why? Because ultimately those questions, if they're asked sincerely, lead to belief. God is a big God. God can deal with your questions and your concerns. But there's a more profound truth in this passage. I think a more personal application. True faith, the kind of faith that we call Easter faith, is not based on the words or the experiences of other people, no matter who those people are. Friends or family members or even pastors. No matter who they are. True faith is grounded ultimately in our own personal experience of the resurrected Christ. That's when we come to faith. When we encounter, like the apostles did, Jesus, face to face, personally, that's when it makes sense. Jesus Christ came to give us our own personal Easter experience. And because He's alive, He is able and He is willing to reveal Himself to us if we will simply ask. But we're afraid to ask. What if I asked God to show Himself to me and he actually did. What would that mean for my life? If we sincerely seek him, Scripture tells us, we will find him. If we sincerely seek him. I want to challenge you this morning to test what I've just said. Ask Christ to show himself to you. To prove himself to you in three important areas of your life. Your past, your present, and in the future. I want to begin with the past. I want us to journey together into the past. And I recognize as we do this, for some of you this may be very painful. But I want to go back to the tomb, to the cemetery of your painful past. I want to go back there for a moment and I want us together to seek the living Christ. Because He is there. 
The past is gone, but for too many of us, it still has a stranglehold on our lives. Far too many of us are still imprisoned by our painful past. If only I had had parents who had loved me more. If only I had had parents that were present and available to me. If only I had studied harder and really done something with my life. If only I had chosen a different career. You know, I always wanted to be a veterinarian. I didn't want to be an accountant. If only I had married that other person. You know, the one that made me happy back then. If only I had gotten married. If only my children had turned out differently. If only my child hadn't died. If only I had had children at all. We are haunted. We are bound up, many of us, by all of these if-onlys, by all of these perceived missed opportunities, by all of our regrets over the things that we did wrong or that we left undone. And many of us just can't get on with our lives. That's the truth. Listen to the words of Jesus himself from the Gospel of John. He said this, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The truth is we can leave all of our regrets, all of our pain, all of our if-onlys at the empty tomb and ask the risen and living Christ to set us free from our painful past. And He will do it. He will do it. It may be a process. It may be a lifelong process. But He will and He can set you free from whatever it is that haunts you. We can also experience the presence and power of Christ in our present circumstances as well. That's very important, by the way. I'm convinced that each one of us wants to become, on some level, a better person. We all want to make a difference, I think, by becoming better or perhaps more extravagant lovers of others in the world, in our families, with our friends. We really want to be authentic people, do we not? We want to be the kind of people that when someone looks at us, what they see is what they get. We want to be authentic lovers of God, I believe, and of other people. Jesus commanded us to love others in the same way that we have been loved by Him. Freely, openly, honestly, Jesus Christ gave Himself to us and to the whole world. He was vulnerable. He risked. He identified with people in every way. He loved them and He loves us unconditionally. And finally, and ultimately, He gave His life for His friends. For you, for me, for the whole world. But how do we do this? How do we love and live like Christ did? We'll only be able to live and love like He did to the degree that we allow Him to fill our lives each day with His love. And the fact is, we'll never be able to give away what we don't possess. We can never give to other people what we ourselves don't experience. If we haven't experienced Christ's love, if we haven't experienced forgiveness and His compassion, we cannot possibly extend that to other people. And yet Jesus, by indwelling us, by filling our lives through Him, we can love other people in that way. We can allow Him to make us extravagant lovers of other people by asking Him to fill our lives and our hearts with His love today. And He will do it. Finally, we can claim the power 
in the presence of the resurrected Christ for the future as well. The Bible says that the people of God, in the best sense of the word, are those who dream dreams and see visions. Do you believe in dreams and visions? In other words, God's children, you and me, Christ's followers, we should possess an unbounded hope and optimism for ourselves, for those around us, friends, family members, and yes, even for the culture in which we live. God loves you and He loves me passionately. And He has an incredible plan, dream, purpose for our lives and a plan that's been in place since the beginning of time. He has a dream for your life. And I'm wondering this morning, do you know what that dream is? Do you believe that God truly has your best interest, has you in mind? Can you imagine what this dream, what this purpose might be? Are you interested in finding out what it could be? Can you dare believe that 25 or 30 years from now, other people may be walking around in your dream? Ask Christ to show you His dream, His purpose for your life, and then trust Him to help make that dream come true. And He'll do it. All of us, on some level, are in this process. Faith, Easter faith, it's not about blindly believing something that's unbelievable. Faith is not about believing the unbelievable. It's not about throwing your brains out the window. It's not about believing in the stories or the experiences of others, no matter how credible those people may be, no matter who they are. That wasn't good enough for the first followers of Christ, and it shouldn't be good enough for us either. We need to come face to face with Jesus Christ for ourselves. We need to have a personal encounter with Him. And to the degree that we do that, faith becomes real. This Easter story becomes believable. Faith is about believing, to be sure. It's about that. But it's about more than that. It's about risking our very lives on the amazing goodness and faithfulness of Christ. Risking our very lives. Faith means trusting that the resurrected and the living Christ, the one that we worship this morning, the one that we believe is in our midst, is able to set us free from the past, from all that stuff that has us so bound up. That He's able to teach us to live significantly now. See, Christianity is not some pie-in-the-sky religion. What difference does Christ make in people's lives now? And He's able to help us live significantly now in the present. And He's able to give us a dream, a hope, a plan, a purpose for the future because He's risen, because He's alive. Hallelujah.